We are going to pick up here on whatever happened to the power of God. We were discussing this this morning. We've been discussing this for years, honestly. Is that when we read Scripture, we see a God who is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, and you see these miraculous signs and wonders that are going on all the time, and yet we just seem to be in this vacuum of nothingness here with God. That we have a God that, yeah, He exists, we believe that, but we're just not seeing Him really interact with us in the way that we would expect. There's been times of where there's been moves of God in this country. If you read about the, the Great Awakenings and the things that happened there, there's mighty moves of God. Many of our denominations today were birthed out of a move of God. You read the writings of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, as an example. Mighty, mighty outpouring moves of God. People praying in tongues, falling down. I mean, all this crazy stuff that's going on that we're thinking some sort of a new fad really is. It's been around forever. And so it's like, what happened to that? Where did God go? He disappeared. You know, it's like we serve this deistic God, maybe. This God who's, yeah, He's kind of controlling everything, but yet He's not interacting with us. Which doesn't make sense because the God of the Bible isn't like that. And if Scripture's to be our God, we ought to be able to look at that and say, we should have some sort of an expectation of the same happening today. When Jesus says that you go into all the world and preach the Gospel, and these signs will follow those who believe... I don't know about you, but I believe. Where do signs go? And we've been looking at this, and part of the issue we have in the uh, modern Christianity today, what we call Christianity, is first of all, the term Christian. What does that even mean, and who defined the term? Because in the Bible, the word Christian is only used three times. Twice in Acts, once in 1 Peter. And it was a derogatory term. The Christians, so to speak, were just another sect of Judaism in the, in the first century. And they were just given the label of the way, followers of the way. You'll see that noted a couple times in Scripture. Because they had to, you know, what are these guys? They're, they're not the Sadducees, they're not the Pharisees, they're followers of the way. Just another sect of Judaism. But out of that birthed this entire movement where now we've got Christianity with no foundation. We've got Christianity as how does one enter into Christianity? Well, I believe in God. Okay, good. I mean, I saw a friend of mine on Facebook who I know is not a born-again believer because I've known this individual for many, 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 many years and um, just made a comment the other day. He's like, I'm just turning everything over to God. You know what they're not turning over to God? Their heart. You see, they believe that they're in fellowship with God in some capacity, yet they've never taken the steps that Jesus said that if you believe in me, then you can be born again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. We want to eliminate that altogether. We just want a God that we can fit into this mold and this image that just makes us comfortable. You see, when we search out a church, we look for a church that just makes us feel good. We want to be challenged, but not too hard. Like, don't push us out of our comfort zone too much. Yeah, we want to learn the Word, but we don't want to be experts in the Bible. I don't care about Greek and Hebrew and participles and all this other stuff that goes along with that. I don't care. Give me the verses that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Give me some of that. Even though Paul's sitting in prison, he's not talking about your ability to hit a golf shot. You see, we've traded in the power of God for a form of godliness, but we have 100% denied His power. You see, the Gospel is transformational. It doesn't just make something dirty clean. It takes something dead and brings it alive. That while you were dead in your trespasses, Jesus died and He made you alive in Him. That we are a new creation through Him. And there's only one way to do that. 
It's not by going to church. It's not by giving money. It's not by doing good deeds. It's not by doing any of that kind of stuff. It's simply, I believe that Jesus died on my behalf and I received that free gift that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the ultimate power of God. Because now, once again, we're taking a dead thing and we're bringing it to life. Now we are in the image of God. But because we don't know our scriptures and because we don't know the word, we have no foundation for the things that we believe. We have convictions, but no basis of them. Yeah, I believe this stuff, but I, don't, I couldn't tell you why. How did you come to that conclusion? That's a question I ask all the time. Whether it be somebody who's an unbeliever, an atheist, agnostic, whatever the case may be. When I hear somebody say, I believe in a higher power, but I don't necessarily believe in a Christian God, I say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? The response, more often than not, I don't know. I just kind of believe it. If only our belief in something made it true. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful after a rainy day that if we believed in a leprechaun at the end of the rainbow that truly had a pot of gold, wouldn't that be wonderful? It'd give us something to do. We'd be chasing that bad boy, right? You guys ever seen the, the show The Curse of Oak Island? You see it? Yeah, some of us like it. We're fans. You notice what they keep finding? Nothing! Millions of dollars being spent because they have a deeply held belief that in a hole somewhere under that island is a pile of gold. It's not working out so well. What are they doing to get the gold? Spending a pile of gold. I mean, but yet they're, they're still in there. What makes them believe it? Well, they keep seeing these little signs and these little things. I had somebody tell me one time they are not a Christian believer. They, uh, they're kind of new agey that they, uh, their grandmother had died. And they walked through their house, and one day the rocking chair was rocking by itself, and that was the, the chair that Grandma always sent, sat in. She's like, I know Grandma's with me. I said, well, how'd you come to that conclusion? She's like, well, the rocking chair was rocking. Okay, then. Because there could be no other explanation for that. And then we got talking about later how it was such a nice day, and they had all the windows open and stuff. Whatever. You see, we have beliefs with no foundation. We have traded in the power of God for this form of godliness because it makes us feel good. We want our rituals. We want to go to church and sit in our pews. We want to stand up and sing our hymns. And we want to go home at the end of the day and just be like we were. Don't ask me to change. Don't ask me to chase God. But what are we to do? The disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus. Oh, well, that was easy for them because Jesus was really there with them. But then in the same breath, we would say he never leaves us or forsakes us, that I am with you always. And, and we act like he's not here. Maybe not physically, but we still have this responsibility of worship to God. And then we began to look at what did they do, these Old Testament believers, these people, that would allow them to remember the mighty works of God. And we turn to Psalm 77, verse 10. It says, I said this, with, this is my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord, and surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your works and talk of your deeds. What are they doing? Here's remembering all the goodness of God, your wonders of old. This is David speaking. What are his wonders of old? Well, you're standing on it. Out of nothing he created everything. That's pretty powerful. We read in Romans 1 how that alone holds the world accountable that there is a God. I've told you stories about Native American tribes who talked about they didn't have a Bible and there weren't white people here spreading the gospel yet. 
But they, they believed in a man named Nua, and he had built a great canoe because the, the Spirit God, the Creator God, had told him to, and was going to destroy all things. And his Spirit God also told them that there will be some people arriving on a boat, and they will have a book that will explain all about him. How did they come to that conclusion? Could they be making this up? Absolutely. How do you ever test that story? But it sounds good, and I like it. But we have all of this stuff going on, and we look back and say, okay, God, what did you do? You know, we've lost sight of it. We take God for granted. Like, yeah, God, I know you did this. I mean, that was great, but I don't really feel like going to church. I don't really feel like worshiping you. I don't really feel like giving today. I don't really feel like singing another song. I don't really feel like that. We're all moved by our feelings because we are undisciplined. We've been studying in Hebrews what makes the definition of somebody who is mature in the faith. It is somebody through reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. It's the reason of use. They're taking what they've learned. They've taken what they've heard and they put it into practice. But we don't want to do that because we're just undisciplined. We want to go through the motions. We talk about athletes as an example and how they have this amazing talent and ability. And it's true, but how do they get it? Because they had to be disciplined to go in there and practice and lift weights and do all this stuff. Michael Phelps talks about swimming 8 to 12 hours a day. I haven't swam 8 to 12 hours combined in the last decade. Unless you count showers. You probably don't. You see, we're undisciplined. We want to go back and talk about the good old days, the things that God did, but we're not willing to discipline ourselves to say, what was it that made that so good? Did God change or did I? You see, we have to have an understanding of this. And so what would happen in the Old Testament is these people would build these memorials so that when they looked at them, they would say, this, this is what God did. Let me tell you about this. They talked about when they crossed over the Jordan and Joshua built the memorial there. That way when the children ask, why? Why is that pile of rocks there? They say, well, let me tell you about the time that we crossed over into the promised land on dry land through the Jordan River. That that's the power of God. That's the goodness of God. Every time you read your Bible, that is a promise of God to you and I. We just got to believe it, but we don't. We talk about Jesus with Passover and the New Covenant. He says, this is the New Covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we take communion, we're doing it remembering the mighty work of God. Without that, this is all for naught. Paul says that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead... Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. But He did raise from the dead. You see, we're doing that in remembrance of Him, trying to remember His goodness and what He's done for us. But yet we're like immature teenagers that we're just like, yeah, thanks for giving me this. Can I have some more? I know you gave me 20 bucks for gas last week, but I I spent all that. Can I have another? We as parents get tired of that, right? Right? but yet we do it to God. God, I remember this time where you were moving mightily and people were getting saved and people were getting healed and people were getting set free and that was great. Could you do it again? But we forgot about the times where we were studying Scripture and we were spending times in prayer and we were just earnestly seeking Him with all that we had. You see, we look back at the past for the memorials of what God has done and God has done amazing, mighty things and you're going to hear about some of this stuff here in the, the coming weeks of in this country that's happened, and around the world of mighty moves of God that have transformed nations. And you're going to hear about a mighty move of God that transformed a people in this town. 
that maybe you don't even know about. That many of you are here as a part of that or as a result of that, of the trickle down. You're going to hear about this stuff. Because we've got to look back and say, what did God do? But as we get into this today, I want to begin to look at some of the words of David. You know, I was praying about, I actually taught something similar to this about four years ago. But I've been praying, God, what do you want to do here? Because this is a message He's put on my heart. Because He hasn't gone away, He hasn't changed. And the problem is, is we take God for granted and we don't remember who we are in Him and who He says that we are. So let's look at this. Let's look at Psalm 103. Verse 1. This is a Psalm of David. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is it within me. Bless His holy name. What's He doing there? He's worshiping God. Bless His holy name. All that is in with, within me. Bless His name. But what do we do today in worship? I surrender some. I mean, God, I'll give you some time on Sunday, but don't ask me for the rest of the week. I don't want to give you the whole time, but I'll give you some time. He's like, all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And then He defines them. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Now leave that up there for a minute. You see, when it talks about forget not all his benefits, what's that talking about? What is a benefit? A benefit is not something that you've earned. It is a result of either who you are or where you are. You can have a benefit. If you're born into a wealthy family, is that a benefit? You better believe it. What did you do for it? Nothing. You just exist. I don't know why I was thinking about this the other day, but there used to be a show on TV called The Simple Life. It had Paris Hilton and Paris Hilton's friend. I can't think of her. Nicole something or other. And these are people that were born in an extremely wealthy family. And they take them out on the farm. And they didn't know what to do there. These are the type of people that carry dogs in purses. And now they're on the farm. We understand the farm. We don't understand dogs in purses. Most of us don't let dogs in our house because they're nothing more than livestock. And they took them out there. But here you have a bunch of individuals that what have they done to earn the notoriety that they have, to earn the wealth that they get to enjoy, and the freedoms that they have because of it? Nothing. It all has to do with their last name. That's it. That's it. That's a benefit. When you go and take a job somewhere, sometimes they offer benefits. Health insurance, 401Ks, whatever the case may be. And what do you have to do to participate, be employed by them. That's it. You're part of the organization. You get it. It's a benefit. What are the benefits of God and why do we get them? We get them because He says that we get them. That's it. If you go through in the entirety of the New Testament, because we talk about New Covenant versus Old Covenant, this is certainly during the time of the Old Covenant, and look what He says. He forgives, He heals, He redeems, He crowns, and He satisfies, and that is under a covenant that has now been replaced by something better, and is based on better promises. So what does He do? Well, the first thing He does is He forgives. Right? Okay? The next thing, what does He do? He heals. I don't know about you, but I like that. Then, He redeems. You guys like my handwriting? It's fancy, ain't it? 
He crowns. And then the last one is He satisfies. Now think about this. We'll go through these quickly. But He says, forget not the benefits. That means that these are implied, able to take at any point in time, because they're yours. When you are employed by an organization that offers health insurance, you don't have to call your boss and say, hey, I was thinking about going to the doctor. Is that okay with you? Because the benefit is you go when you need it. It's there, it's yours, you take it. So, He forgives. You ought to be thankful for that. The reason He forgives is because He can forgive. Sin is now forgiven. Not just covered, it is now forgiven. And in different places it says it's not that He forgets it, and He chooses not to remember it. You see, forgiveness of sin is key because if our sins are still with us, what are we? We are still lost. We're not His. We're not with Him. We're not on His side. We're still lost. He also heals. What do you think that word heals mean? If you break this down in the Hebrew, you know what the word heals means? It means to get better. It means heals. He redeems. He buys back. He crowns. And it's a crown that we'll throw at His feet. And ultimately, what can we find in life that satisfies more than Him? Nothing. Oh, we'll try. We'll spend thousands of dollars. We'll go buy the latest, greatest new gadget, bigger house, more cars, another boat, whatever the case may be, seeking satisfaction in it. But we can never find it. Fame, fortune, all the promises of the world, we can never find satisfaction only in Christ. These are things that only He does. And David's telling people, say, listen, do not forget these. These are important. These are what God has done for you. Not that we have done to earn it. What did we earn here? What can we do to get any of this stuff? Nothing. See, as a benefit, being under the covenant with the Father and with the Son is that we receive the benefits of the covenant. The nation of Israel, underneath the old covenant, what did they have to do to enter into that covenant? Really nothing. Because they were born in Israel life, they're automatically a part of the nation. Now, there were uh, conditions upon the Mosaic covenant, but not the Abrahamic covenant. Part of that covenant was the land covenant. What does the nation of Israel have to do to have a right to the land? Nothing, because God said it's theirs. So, here we have promises of God. And we have to understand where these come from. Because remember, we're going to look back at His goodness and the things that He's done. As a memorial to Him, that we see that He forgives, that He heals, and He redeems, and He crowns, and He satisfies. Only He does that. Now, I have talked about a few things, but I want to, I want to go into a little more in-depth to this today. You see, the th- theme of the Bible is really one thing. It's God's redemptive work for mankind. The Old Testament's about a nation. A nation birthed beginning with Abraham. And then, from that, the nation of Israel is born. And it's through that nation that the Messiah comes. And there's a lot of stuff that goes in between that, but that's ultimately it. But the New Testament is fulfillment of the Old Testament, and that that Messiah has now been here, and He has fulfilled the prophecies and the promises that God has made, that any that would come to Him in faith would not perish. Christ is the key that unlocks all the mysteries of the Old Testament. If you're reading something and you don't understand it, hey, if you put Christ into that, it will open it up. It will make you understand it. But what we don't get, and I've talked about this, this concept of progressive revelation. 
is that God paints pictures using metaphors, using different parts about spiritual concepts because He knows this visualization. It can enhance our understanding. And one of the themes in that, and we've talked about this, but we just come out of Passover and Easter and understanding this is the Lamb of God. And so I want to use this today to explain exactly how God has used this. Because we look to the Scriptures as our guide. But we have to understand how He works. Now, I have done this with some of you, but I talk about it often. And I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. And a progressive revelation, what that means, is God reveals Himself in Scripture through the message, His plan for humanity. And it's done in stages. So He doesn't just come out and say, here's what I'm going to do! All at once. But you're going to watch the theme build upon itself until you get to the point, to the climax of it. And this is important. So we call these types, we call these shadows, that just simply means it's this murky picture of something that becomes clear as time passes. Let me give you an example of that. What year did Israel become a nation again? 1948. 49. We got... Anybody want to say 50? Anybody? Okay. Oh, we got 50 back there. All right. Now, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Whether you realize it or not, that may not seem like a big deal. Prior to that happening, all the prophecy experts had taken the idea of Israel being in the land, and they had simply made it more of an um, anecdotal idea, an, an analogy of Christ in the church. The land wasn't the physical land, but it was something metaphorical that the body of believers were now in the spiritual land. And why did they do that? Because the nation of Israel had ceased to exist. It had not been a nation for what? A thousand years, something like that? I mean, longer than that. Basically, 70 A.D., they got run out of Jerusalem when the Romans came in, destroyed the temple, and chased everybody off. And they had never come back together. And in 1948, 49, or 50, whichever one you want to believe, is that for the first time, what had been a nation, for the first time in mankind, had come back together as a nation. Now why is that a big deal? Well, according to fulfillment of prophecy, the Jews had to be in the land. But since they weren't in the land, they just assumed, well, he must not have really meant that. And so prior to this, all the experts were saying this was just spiritual. Back in the 1800s, you can read writings that, say, that says every prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to return has already been fulfilled. Obviously not. They were wrong. Why were they wrong? Because they were interpreting the Scriptures through the lens of the world. But that's not how we do it. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture so we can get the concept that God is trying to say. Hal Lindsey was one of the few people out there prior to that that said, no, listen, this has to happen. I think Schofield was another one saying, they have to be in the land. And everybody's like, you guys are crazy, that's never going to happen. It's not possible. But here they are. You see, there was this idea that God had given all the time. But after it had happened, suddenly everybody looked back and were like, oh, it was so clear, it was there the entire time, and we didn't see it. That's what I'm talking about. This progressive revelation. As things happen in life, we begin to look back and say, oh, I get that. That's what God did there. 
I mean, even the, the Great Awakenings, the first Great Awakenings, were not recognized as revival until years later when they look back and say, oh my goodness, this was going on all over the place. This wasn't an isolated event. So, let's look at this. Let's, we're going to connect the dots, and today we're going to start with Adam and Eve. We're starting in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to take you through this, and I want you to see how God moves here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is the time where Adam and Eve sinned. We know the story. The creation accounts in chapters 1 and chapter 2, chapter 3. This is where the serpent enters in. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Who was the serpent? It's the devil. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You should not eat of every tree of the garden? In case you were wondering, he still operates in the same way. He's already questioning the word of God. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit, Of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Stop. Where did God tell them not to touch it? He didn't. Where did she get that idea? Maybe her husband. Like, listen, he told me, I'm telling, don't even go near it. Just stay away from it. All right? It's bad. I don't know. But what has she done here? She's added to the word of God. Then the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Now what made her do this? What did he say? You will be like God. Now they have a, a unique relationship with God that we don't enjoy today. Because what you've got to understand, and you've got to get past all the, the pictures and paintings and, and all of that, is that Eden was the domain of God. There's a mountain in it. This is where God's throne was. Everything was there. And so they had a fellowship with not only God, but all the creation, the angels, all of them. Everything that God had created was there in the garden because this was the domain of God. And so she has everything that she needs but one thing. It looks good, it's going to taste good, it's pleasant to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise. In other words, to make one like God. So she took of the fruit and she ate it. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Okay, now so they're, they're completely naked. What were they covered with? The glory of God. You see, their eyes were open to a world that they didn't even know exists because the glory of God covered everything. There was no sin on this world at this point. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam, and he said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Now, this is, a, this is not a question that God doesn't already know the answer to. He knows. Verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that? And so the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So what did he do? He passed the buck. And that woman... Right? You should have picked a rib from the other side. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Who she blame? The serpent. Now, if it wasn't Adam's fault, then God should curse Eve. But if it wasn't Eve's fault, God should simply curse the serpent, the devil. Right? We'll see what he does. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you should go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you should eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and that you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. Now, here's what's going on. He cursed all three of them because they were all three responsible to themselves to be obedient to the word of the Lord. That means that you don't automatically get in no matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how good your folks were or anything like that. You are responsible for yourself. But I've got a list here that I want to show. Go ahead and throw that up there. You see, when we talk about this, is that he puts enmity between the, man, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What we see here, mine says that he'll bruise your heel, but some versions say that he will crush your head. Is that the seed of the woman will crush Satan. There's going to be enmity between them. But that's what's going to happen. And then what did he do after he's put the curse on them? It says he creates tunics of skin. He creates a covering for them once again. Now this is the beginning of something. He had to kill something. Blood had to be shed in order for these skins to be made. So there was a sacrifice that was made. He did it on their behalf. Now you think he'd be mad. You think he'd be upset. You think maybe he'd just like, yeah, let's just start over. We'll recreate everything. We'll do this again. But he doesn't. He creates a covering for them. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, but there is a, uh, a belief in the names of the stars. The Masoretics, not the Masoretic, the, uh, um, the word slip in my mind, it starts with a name though, about the different names of the constellations and stuff like that, that if you study out the names of it, it actually is a picture of the gospel in them from the original names that go back thousands and thousands of years. And what they believed is this started with Adam painting the picture of redemption for mankind and how God was going to do it. Yeah, you've got the other side of stuff where they get your uh, horoscopes and all that other kind of nonsense from it. I'm not talking about astrology. I'm talking about astronomy. And so... Anyway, we see God taking care of these people. He's doing it Himself on their behalf, right? All right. Now, let's go on. Let's look at Cain and Abel. Because we see here an offering that's going to be made. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flocks and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. What's desire is for you? Sin. You should rule over sin. Now, we know what happens, right? Because we've read the story a thousand times. Cain gets mad. He kills Abel. God comes down. Why is Abel's blood calling out for me from the dirt? But the question is, is why is this a problem? We got from the, uh, the, the 
the curse put on mankind and on serpent. And then we get into the story with two men being born. And they both bring sacrifices. What is the problem? So, there's two things that are going on here. The first is Cain's offering was of the fruit of the ground. And that's a beautiful thing. You can actually do that, but it was bloodless. And when you brought an offering for God, especially a sin offering, it required, there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. We watched that happen prior to that. But here we see that Abel offered the firstborn of the flock and the fat portions of it, which is all the Hebrew metaphors talking about the choices of it. Abel's offering was a blood offering. It was the best that he had to offer. But there's another piece. Now look at this. In verse 3, I want you to see this. Verse 3. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now look at verse 4. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat. Now where do we see the commandment prior to this that God told them that you bring the first fruit offering? We don't. But it's certainly implied here, isn't it? It has to be. Because otherwise, Cain's offering is every bit as acceptable. Every bit as acceptable. And so, this hinges on an important point. And when we look at it in hindsight, we can see this. As an example, in Romans 11, verse 16, it says, If the first fruit is holy, then the lump is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So what is the first fruit? You bring the firstborn and the best. When, they, when that cow had a calf, the first calf belonged to God. And then everything after that was promised by God that it will be well with you. And the reason they did that is it was an element of faith. Because just because one cow has a calf doesn't mean it will ever have another one. There is no guarantee. Anything could happen. But by faith, they brought the first fruits. You see, it wasn't just that Cain's offering was bloodless. That's a part of it. But it says he brought an offering in the process of time. It means when he got around to it, he looked around and says, you know, I did pretty good. I think I'll take a little bit to God. And I'll sacrifice it. I'll, I'll burn it for him. But Abel took the firstborn and the best, which is how God does it. Why does that matter? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to the Mount of Zion and a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What is this talking about? It's going back to this same event. Well, you've got to continue on to get this picture of what's happening in Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Some say first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But to each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. You see, Jesus resurrected on the festival of first fruits. And it's all was a picture from the very beginning. God didn't just get around to it and send an offering. He sent the best He could, the firstborn, the first fruit offering on our behalf. You guys see how we take that first fruits concept and as we get through Scripture, it becomes clearer what it is. It ultimately was a picture of Christ. So, what do we see about these offerings? Let's go back to this list. 
we got the seed of the woman that will crush Satan, and that offering, whatever that's going to be, it has to be acceptable. Ultimately, it's got to be a first fruit offering. Right? You guys see that so far? You see how we're getting there? Because what we're doing is we're painting this picture using all of Scripture. Well, let's jump over to Abraham. Abraham and Isaac. We know the story. We talked about it a little bit. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In order to do that, what has to happen? He's got to have a son. Remember Abraham talking? He's sitting like, God, I have nobody of my own flesh that I can make heir. It's got to be a servant in my household. God says, don't worry. I'm going to give you a son. And he's like, How? I'm old. And have you seen my wife? She ain't young either. Sarah laughed when she heard the news. Guess what, baby? You're going to get pregnant. I know you're old. I know you're pushing 100. It's okay. Could you imagine walking into the hospital in your walker? I'm here to give birth. So, God makes this promise. Abraham takes things into his own hands. But ultimately, God fulfills the promise. Then God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son Isaac, your firstborn, and I want you to take him up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him there. What does Abraham do? Sure! Now why does he say that? I mean, how can you so confidently just say, okay, I'll do this? Could, could, could you? Could you imagine... Is if that at some point God appears to you and says, Listen, I need you to take your son and I want you to take him up on the top of the hill and I want you to go ahead and sacrifice him there to me. Now, if you get that in a vision, please call me. I'll help you because you need help. Okay? But here's the thing look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 13. He goes through, they bring the wood up. It's he and Isaac just by themselves. They bring the wood up and they go through and they're about ready to act it up and. and on the way up, and, and Abraham says, uh, or excuse me, Isaac says to Abraham, he's like, hey, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, don't worry, God, God's going to provide the lamb. Verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behind the, him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram, and he offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, here's the thing. Get the whole picture of what's happening here. Is Abraham's about to enact it. God says, stop. I see that you're faithful. And he looks over. That's what happened, right? But why was he so confident? He was confident in the promise of God is going to make him the father of many nations. And it was going to be through Isaac. So he knew from the time that God gave the command that he would go up there, he would sacrifice. But what was God going to do? He'd raise him from the dead. He knew that. Now, there's a bigger picture going on. I'll just briefly tell you this. But if you look at it, the time from the command of God to the time that they were up on the mountain getting ready to uh, go into to sacrifice him was three days. And from the moment that God gave the command in Abraham's eyes, he was already sacrificed. So he was in the grave for three days. You'll also, if you study this out further, is that when it talks about coming down from the mountain... Isaac's name is left out. It talks about the servants that go with him, but you've got to go forward a little bit. And then all of a sudden, when Isaac finds a wife, his name is brought back in. What is that a picture of? That Christ left, but when he comes back for his bride. What's his bride? You and I. That's a fun another study that we're not getting into today. I just can't help but leave it out. But what do we see here? We see in this, let's go back to this list, is that the sacrifice that has to be made 
God's going to provide. This is where the emphasis shifts of just the necessity of it, because we know that, but that God is going to provide the sacrifice. You see, it's not based off of you. It wasn't based off of them. That God will provide the sacrifice. Abraham knew exactly what he was doing. He knew from the very beginning. There was no question on it. So, let's go forward a little bit more. Let's look at Passover. We talked about this last week, but let's look at it again. Exodus 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to his house, to the house of his father, and a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbors next to him, his household, uh, house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you should make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, doesn't matter. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it. With a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt this is the 10th plague that's coming in they're get, Israelites are getting ready to go out that's why I said listen get your sandals on have your sack ready and get ready to go and you need to go and you kill this lamb this is the only sacrifice that did not involve a priest the rest of the time when they set that up at that point all the sacrifices were done by the priest with the exception of the Passover lamb that the family had to kill on their own wasn't enough to kill it wasn't enough to eat it they had to apply the blood without the application of the blood the angel of death would come through they see there is no blood here so therefore the firstborn would die firstborn animal firstborn um, son happens throughout Egypt you know the stress of the story they get to go through the story of Passover is because the Lord passed over all the houses with the blood on the door but we see here what it's stressing is that it's the Death and the application of the blood of the Lamb. So as we begin to progress this picture more, go to that list again there, kiddo. The sacrifice is going to be a lamb. They did this every year. They still do this every year. We just had Passover. I was just talking to our Jewish missionary, Raleigh, and he was talking about how they celebrate the Passover and the Seder meal and all of that other kind of stuff. Now, he's not in his backyard sacrificing a lamb, just so you know. All right, But he, they do eat it. So we see here that this lamb or what's going to be sacrificed here, is a lamb. So we've got this. If we're going through it, it's going to be the seed of the woman that's ultimately going to redeem mankind. But it's got to be an acceptable offering that God's going to provide, and that uh, provision is going to be a lamb. You guys see how the picture... Now, we, you guys know where I'm going with this. 
But could you imagine that you're just going through life and you're just kind of like a piece at a time, a piece at a time. It's not until you look back that you're like, oh, I can see that picture very clearly. But it's not just that the lamb would have to be sacrificed. There was a certain condition of the lamb that had to be there. When you get into the book of Leviticus, it is a worship manual that contains instructions on all the different sacrifices that were administered, including the feasts and other things. And throughout the entirety of the book, it talks about the character of the lamb. It talks about it 20 times that this offering has to be without blemish. Look at Leviticus 22, verse 21. The second half of that, it's got to be perfect to be accepted. And there shall be no defect in it. Perfect lambs. When the angel came and said, hey, just so you know, there's a Messiah born. You'll find him in swaddling clothes. He's lying in a manger. He went to the shepherds that birthed these Passover lambs. And when they would get them and they were born, they would inspect them. They would wrap them in swaddling clothes until they calmed down because they would thrash if it got a bruise, if it got a broken leg. It could no longer qualify as a Passover lamb because it has to be perfect. So it can't just be any old lamb. It had to be your best one. Had to be. That's why they created a market for it. That's how they were selling them. Okay? So we see the characteristics of the lamb. Now it's going to go to that list again. We see this going. That the character of the lamb, without spot, without blemish, is absolutely perfect. But when you jump over to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52 and 53 are the most famous messianic uh, uh, prophecies that are in the Bible. Most Jews have never read this because they've been told by their rabbis not to. And so what we see here in 53 verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. You see, this is monumental progression in this idea of what the lamb is because the lamb always signified by an animal. But here we learn that this lamb is a person. That this Passover that they've been celebrating is going to be fulfilled by a person. Go to that list again. There's one more there, kid. You see, what we've got here is we've got this progressing of the idea and the understanding of the concepts. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter. You see, the Israelites, when Jesus arrived, they had believed at that point that they were this... um, sacrificial lamb that they, because of all the persecution and they thought their Messiah was going to come and reign as a king. But that's not what happened. Because they were expecting two Messiahs to come once. Or one Messiah, yeah, yeah, two Messiahs to come once. But in reality, it was one Messiah that would come twice, the sacrificial lamb and the reigning king, which is the second part. So, when you jump from this point, knowing all of this stuff now, we get into the New Testament, we learn something incredible about the Lamb. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is he talking about? Jesus. Go down a little further, and again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Suddenly the Lamb has a name. The Lamb is on the earth. We've been waiting. 
The Lamb is here. This revelation is progressing. John, who is a greater prophet than even Moses, declaring that behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, in this list, as we continue to look at it, if you can go ahead. There we go. We got the Lamb as a person, but we get the Lamb with a name. That Jesus is this Lamb. All this time, maybe they just thought, well, we're just sacrificing lambs because it's what we do. Because it's a great big party. We have a good time. But this Lamb was so much more. Every year they did this. This Passover. Every year they sacrificed. And then finally, in the fulfillment of it, Jesus died on Passover. And went into the grave for three days and was raised at first fruits, being the first fruit among many. Proving that He was the Messiah. And that's what we have to look at. As you continue into the New Testament, you begin to see more about Him. That He wasn't just the Lamb, but that He was more. In Acts chapter 8, we see a story of Philip, and he gets instructions from this angel and the Lord, and he helps this Ethiopian eunuch. And a eunuch was a man who was basically castrated for the purpose of, of servitude in a royal household. Because then he had no distractions, if you know what I mean. In Acts chapter 8, verse 30, he sees him reading. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he reads, read was, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before a shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who would declare his generation for his life taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this is? Of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So in case you didn't know and there was any doubt at this point, this shows that Jesus was the Lamb and He is the promised Christ. What Philip does is he connects the dots going back to that thing, to that passage in Isaiah 53. Yeah, He was a sacrificial Lamb, but He had to be because He was the Christ, God's anointed one, the Messiah. But it doesn't stop there. Because as we progress further, we see more about this Lamb in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a Lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through Him believe in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, Peter summarizes the different aspects of the Lamb that we've seen previously, and he adds a new truth here. And some of the future consummations that are going to take place. We have the necessity of the Lamb. That it was not with corruptible things. We see that the provision was given. That He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This wasn't a new idea that God sprung into action. Before God created one thing, He knew that this was going to happen. It talks about the slaying. This is the precious blood of Christ and the character, again, without blemish or without spot, that He was a person from the very beginning. That Lamb was nothing more than a picture to get you to Christ. It's a summary of the progressive revelation at its finest. And then Peter lays down a new truth in this next revelation in verse 21. Who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. What is this new hope? It's this resurrection. 
This continued revelation is this resurrection of God. That God raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. There were always hints in the Old Testament about resurrection. You see them arguing about it. You see the Sadducees don't believe in it. You see Paul addressing it in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like, listen, if people don't raise from the dead, then you're still in your sins because Christ wouldn't be risen from the dead. But they do, therefore you're not. We see here that the resurrection concept that Peter uses, he introduces in company this new feature, this hope. The reason that we have hope in God is because of the resurrection. You see, God had made promises. And how do we know if God's going to fulfill those promises? We look back to the resurrection of Jesus. Because it either happened or it didn't. There's no in-between. You can't maybe rise from the dead. You either did or you did not. And so, if He did, and He did, then you have the hope of everything that comes with that new life in Him. That those who are in Him will never see death. Talking about spiritually. And ultimately, as we go further with this, we see the enthronement of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a Lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Now when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, which having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open His for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. What happens with the Lamb? He didn't just die. He's seated at the right hand of God and His throne will be on the earth and we will reign with Him. But how do we do that? It wasn't that He died. It's that the blood was applied to our lives. That we received that sacrifice. You see it again in chapter 22, verse 3. It says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no light there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You see, Revelation 21 and 22 is the climax of this biblical salvation history. And in the very beginning, we see the sacrifice, but now we're coming to the point where we see that the Lamb is on the throne, fulfilling all of the promises from the very beginning. Because at this point, what has been fulfilled? The land received by the nation of Israel promised by God. The Mosaic Covenant as a picture and all the sacrifices of the Passover saying that we need this Messiah. We need this sacrificial lamb that can take away the sins of the world. Prophesied by Isaiah and pictured by other places throughout the Old Testament. 
fulfilled by Jesus, starting when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, He's fulfilled the Passover. He has fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. At this point, He has fulfilled the Abrahamic Covenant. And now, when He is seated on the throne on the earth, He has fulfilled the Davidic Covenant. The promise to David is somebody from your line will sit on the throne in Jerusalem forever. Jesus didn't sit on that throne when He reigned the first time, or when He was on the earth the first time, because that throne didn't exist. So either God made a promise He didn't keep, or it's yet to happen. And it's yet to happen. But there's one more part. In Revelation 21, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. What does it say there? That the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell. You see, all the sacrifices done in the tabernacle were always a picture that Moses had seen, that God has shown him, build it exactly the way I told you to. But the tabernacle was Jesus the entire time. He is with us. That Lamb is the everlasting kingdom of the Lamb. You guys see how this picture gets more progressive. We understand it better because we can look back. And all of this is to point out one thing today. That's what it takes for the forgiveness of sins. Salvation may be free, but it was never cheap. We cheapen it because we're not grateful. We're not thankful. We're not like, boy, God, you did an amazing thing. Look at what had to take place for you and I to sit here today because we could never really be in that covenant because we're not Jews. But when God said that I have a new covenant that I'll make with the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, not like the covenant of old which they broke, but I'll write my laws on their hearts. Guys, we can't just come near to God with our lips and be far from Him with our hearts. We don't want to be a people that have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. Guys, this power brings dead things to life. And with this, all of this is possible. If we eliminate that, nothing there is possible. You guys see how we look at this? You see the picture that we're getting? Why am I telling you all this? Because when we look back and read these things, these need to be a memorial to us. When we come together, like we did last week, and we take part of this communion, everything I just read you is part of that. We take it for granted. We're like, oh good, the Jews went through some tough times, and Jesus came. Then He forgot about them, and He's on to us, because we're better. He likes us more. We need to take this seriously. We need to take the things of God more seriously. We need to take our time more seriously. We need to take our worship more seriously. We need to take our giving more seriously. We need to take our walk with the Lord more seriously. What happened to the power of God? We've forgotten His benefits. We walk around, we've got them. We don't think about them. We've forgotten them. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that person anymore.